From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. Today, with the government shutdown looming again in just a week, we'll talk with Georgia Congressman Buddy Carter. We'll share with him the results of an AJC poll that reveal who Georgians will blame if the government does shut down. I'm Bill Nygut. A Georgia man is in custody after making violent threats against Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'll shoot her in the head, he said in a phone call to Green's office. We'll also hear from WABE political reporters Sam Greenglass and Rahul Bali. And it's Friday, which means we'll answer your questions from our listener mailbag and tell you who we think is up and down for the week. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Good morning, Bill, on this Veterans Day holiday. Good morning, Tia. Yeah, I'm really glad that you started off by mentioning uh, Veterans Day uh, because we have so many reasons to be grateful for the women and men who have served their country, In many of them at risk of losing their lives, many of them who did in fact die defending the democracy that we care so deeply about and which we hope we are going to hold on to. Absolutely. And um, a lot of folks um, have today off, but we do not. And we have a packed show today. We're going to talk about the Georgia man who's in custody after allegedly making violent threats against Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, WAB politics reporters Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass will join us shortly. And of course, we'll end the show answering questions from the listener mailbag, and we'll have this week's Who's Up and Who's Down. But first, Bill, we have a very special guest on the line, all the way from coastal Georgia, representing Georgia's first congressional district. We have U.S. Representative Buddy Carter, Representative Carter, I must say, it's a little weird interviewing you on the radio and not in person (laughs) on the Hill. That's true. Very true. I'm used to seeing you in the hallway grabbing at me and saying, oh, I need to come in. I need to come in. (laughs) Yes, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. And thanks, uh, honestly, for all those hallway conversations. Sure. So, Representative Carter, let's get right into it. I'm looking at the calendar. We are one week until current government funding runs out. If there is not some type of stopgap in place by then, <laughs> we're looking at a shutdown. Um, how? What are the possibilities of a government shutdown next week? Well, I'm still optimistic that we're going to be able to get some stopgap funding, um, whether it be a clean CR, continuing resolution, to continue on what we're, with what we're doing. Or whether it be what has also been proposed is referred to as a ladder CR. Remember, we have 12 appropriation bills that we have to pass every year. We've already passed seven of them, over 70 percent of the uh, of the discretionary spending. 
Now, if we take some of those seven bills, go ahead and send them to the Senate. Go ahead and well, they've been sent to the Senate, but but let the Senate deal with them. Let us conference together. Let us pass those bills and let them become effective. But let us CR everything else until we get a chance to work on those. Then we can. That's what's referred to as the latter CR. Then we can continue on without a government shutdown and. Let me let me just say that no one wants to see. Well, I shouldn't say no one. Very few people want to see a shutdown. However, a shutdown is not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen would be for us to continue this reckless spending that has gotten us thirty four trillion dollars in debt. That would be the worst thing that could happen. But I really do think we can avoid a, a shutdown. So, Representative Carter, you mentioned this latter CR. We've heard from not just Democrats, but even Republicans in the Senate who say that's going to be confusing. It's going to create all these shutdown deadlines and it's going to be kind of not really manageable. How do you deal with even some criticism among Republicans that what House Republicans are thinking about doing is just going to make more of a mess? Well, you know, it hasn't been tried before, so we don't know how it, it would work. But at the same time, I, I think it's worth a try. Yeah, it's, it's going to take a little managing. But, um, you know, to think that we can have all 12 bills done, even if we were to do a CR until January 22nd, which is, is being floated around, that would be difficult in itself to get all 12 of them done. Brandon, we've done seven thus far. We had hoped to do two of them this week. We had hoped to do transportation and housing and urban development, which we refer to as T-HUD. We had hoped to do financial services, but we didn't get either one of those done this week. And therefore, we're, we're stuck at seven. Now we've got to, you know, we've still got to, to pass them as well as the other remaining bills. So, you know, you, you put yourself in a position where you've got to get all 12 before you can move forward. Why not just get some of them and then move forward and and work on the rest of them? Congressman, it's Bill. Um, I'm a little surprised to hear you say that a government shutdown wouldn't be the worst thing that could happen. And I want to put that to the side just for a moment, because in the meantime, um, there is a lot of reporting right now that your new speaker, Mike Johnson, um, is having the same kind of problems uh, building support for a spending resolution uh, that uh, led to the ouster of Kevin McCarthy. Now, I know the Georgia delegation was not responsible uh, among yourselves in the, in the GOP delegation for his uh, McCarthy being ousted, but Johnson, too, is struggling to bring everybody on board with a spending bill. So here's, I guess there's a couple of questions here. Why, why are we continuing to see the GOP in the House seem to be in such a disarray over spending. But probably more important is, why do you think it's okay if we have a government shutdown? That could cause pain, serious pain for a great many Americans. Well, first of all, let me clarify now. I didn't say that it would be okay to have a government shutdown. What I said is that is not the worst thing that uh, could happen. F- fair enough. But let me ask you then but, that. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be a, a, the worst thing that could happen? The reason why is because our spending is out of control. The number one responsibility of our federal government is to protect our homeland and protect our citizens. We are now spending more on the interest on our debt than we are on defense. That's inexcusable. Every second 
every second, this government borrows $78,000. Every second, we borrow $78,000. Now, let's play a little game real quick. I'm going to give you we, the, the top four spending lines in the federal government. I'll give you number one, three, and four, and you tell me what number two is. Number one is Social Security. Number three is Medicare. Number four is defense. What's number two? I frankly the interest on our debt. Yeah. Okay. The interest on our debt. So, it Representative is the Carter, we don't national have you. security threat we have. We don't have you for a lot of time, and honestly, we're gonna have to have you back soon because <laughs> we've got so much. But I want to um, kind of pivot a little bit. Just yesterday, I reported about a really troubling call received by Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, that led to an arrest of a, a man in, in the in Atlanta accused of making those threats. Uh, Representative McCormick said he received threats at his office this week. I wanted to ask you as a member of Congress, you know, do you find yourself taking more security precautions? Are things getting worse in your opinion? Yeah, quite honestly, I do believe they are. And yes, I've had death threats as well. And it is disturbing. It's disturbing because, you know, look, we have families and we're concerned about families. We're away from home a lot. My wife is by herself a lot. They're paying for security at our homes now. They didn't do that before. Now they're encouraging us to have security at our homes. We've reached a point in our society where we really need to just take a step back and look at this and, and ask ourselves, is this really the way we want America to go? I, I I feel for Representative Green and for Representative McCormick, and I understand what they're going through. Um, it, it is very troubling, and it's very concerning. And when we start acting as if it's the norm and we should just accept it, no, that's some kook. No, that's not good at all, because it would only take one person to lose it. And keep in mind, now, I'm a healthcare professional, a pharmacist. I've dealt with people uh, and getting mental health medication. And I know what can happen whenever they miss their medication or whenever they go without their medication. So I'm going to tell you, there are some people out there who are on the edge and, and we need to be aware of that. So and go ahead, Bill. I just want I know, again, we're running short on time. Congressman, I, I assume you either watched the Republican debate the other night or certainly saw it, uh, highlights of it, read reports about it. Um, right here in Georgia, our poll shows that uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are in a dead heat. Um, what did you think of the candidates on the stage the other night? Are any of them an alternative to Donald Trump? Do you anticipate endorsing Donald Trump at some point in the near future? Well, first of all, the debate um, last Wednesday, we were in session. We were actually voting. And um, so I missed the debate, but I did see highlights of it. And I think that Nikki Haley and, and Ron DeSantis, who I served with for four years in the House, uh, both did well. I think we've got a strong bench. I think that we've got a lot of talent in the Republican Party and even some people who weren't on that stage who would make fine candidates as president and certainly do a better job than what we've got in the White House right now. And But the one who was not on that stage, of course, was Donald Trump. And he is the uh, by far the the leading candidate right now. And it looks as if, and barring any unforeseen circumstances, that um, he will be our nominee. So 
And and certainly he would do, anyone would do better than what we've got in the White House right now. And that's just pitiful. Do you anticipate though uh, uh, endorsing Donald Trump at any point in the near future? We we will make a decision on that. Yes, in the near future, and um and and you'll you'll be hearing about it soon. Yes. That's right. We want to be the first to know, Representative Carter. So, Paul, <laughs> <laughs> so we're out of time. But again, thank you so much for joining us. And I'll see you next week when you're back in Washington. And Tia, it's just a pleasure working with you in Washington. Thank you for all the fine work y'all are doing. Thanks, Congressman. Thank you. Oh, thanks. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. Heads up to fans of the Jolt Daily Political Newsletter. On Monday, we're changing our name to Politically Georgia. It'll be your same daily jolt of news, insight, and analysis from me, Adam Van Brimmer, and the rest of the team, including Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein, just now housed under our new brand, which you know from this podcast. So you can get it in your inbox every morning by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. You'll get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. So guys, we just had Representative Buddy Carter on. Sam, I'll start with you. What stood out for you when you heard his interview? You know, I think it's something that Bill picked up on and put to the congressman saying it would not be the worst thing that could happen in reference to a shutdown. And it really called back to me some reporting I did in January around the speaker vote. Remember, this very long, drawn-out process uh, to elevate Kevin McCarthy to the speaker's chair. And I spent some time in Andrew Clyde's district in North Georgia, and I met a lot of voters who, you know, told me that gridlock, shutdown, isn't necessarily a bad result. Uh, You know, I met one voter named Minton O'Neill who said, I believe we have enough laws. I don't think gridlock is a bad thing. And so I think you're he's right that in some parts of the state, people are upset with Congress, upset with the idea of a shutdown. But in other corners of the state, you know, this isn't necessarily a thing that is going to be repulsive to people. Raul, one thing that I've kind of heard in my reporting from some conservative voters is not just, you know, Representative Carter said shutdown's not the worst thing. If it happens, we'll deal with it. But there are some kind of on the far right, those um, hardliners that are saying shut it down. They actively, I remember Marjorie Taylor Greene had a town hall and she said, should I vote to shut the government down? And they started cheering in the audience. You know, can you talk a little bit, Raul, about the fact that in the Republican Party, there seems to be an appetite for doing that in hopes of forcing the government to kind of redo spending? There is absolutely that wing within the conservative and Republican movement, the belief of just shut it down, there, that that may be the only way to get things done in Washington, especially when it comes around spending. But, you know, a couple of the important things to note, you know, we, we saw that number earlier this week about around one trillion dollars um, uh, deficit wise. You know, one of the smallest numbers there was spending one hundred sixty nine million dollars. 
some of the bigger numbers, Social Security, Medicaid, and yes, interest on the debt. So it's interesting because some of the bigger the bigger things that have to be dealt with are things like Medicaid, Social Security, um, things that are mandatory spending items. Here, here's the problem with this notion of, oh, sure, shut the government down. I, I get it. Carter said it's not the worst thing that could happen. But but here's the problem. Number one, from a political point of view, shutdowns have never worked out well when Republicans have led them as they have since Newt Gingrich's time in, in, as Speaker and before. Um, and by the way, our, our latest AJC poll sh- says that if the government were to be shut down, 40% of Georgia voters would blame it on Republicans, only 26% on Democrats. But but here I think is a larger point. Um, it is Congress's job to pass a budget. Now, you can say that the deficit is out of control. Buddy Carter makes an excellent point there. It is staggering. But the real problem here is the unwillingness, first of all, of Republicans within their own conference to work amicably, collegially, and productively to come up with a budget that they can all support instead of being divided by ideological rifts that contribute to the problem. And and until that can be done to say that a shutdown is fine uh, because the deficit is out of control is somewhat disingenuous. Yeah, I just want to note, I did a little bit of reporting around the time that our own Congressman Austin Scott was briefly in the running for speaker. And I talked to uh, a local politician in his district, Julie Smith, who is the mayor of Tipton, where Scott's from. And she told me that it was so, as a Republican, it was very frustrating to watch this dysfunction in the House, that people are starting to lose faith in government, and that's disappointing. And so I think you're right. This isn't a unified feeling that the government should shut down among the Republican Party. There are still some pockets of people that see this as frustrating. Well, plus they have a certain obligation to actually work in the interests of the American people, and that would mean finding a way among Democrats and Republicans to pass a spending bill. Uh, And and Tia, one other thing that, and and by the way, this kind of fits in this through line that we're talking about right now. (laughs) The other thing that jumped out at me about the interview you just did with, with Congressman Carter is his increasing security arrangements. You know, what's going on with Rich McCormick closing his office, Marjorie Taylor Greene having to close um, her office. I mean, you, you hear him talking about the arrangements that they're having to make security-wise. And I'm not going to mention any names, but, you know, when we're out in the field with some politicians, we notice that some of them have a, an extra security officer mm-hmm. or some who didn't have them before do have them. So this kind of fits in in this whole conversation of, of of our changing politics. I mean, it's something we've also seen here in Fulton County with the grand jury investigation in the Trump case. Uh, DA Fonnie Willis has been subject to threats. The grand jurors who indicted, uh, who were on the panel that indicted Trump, had their names posted on line and were doxxed. Uh, so this is something we're increasingly seeing, not just members of Congress, but local officials and even people serving on juries and election officials. Uh, so I think this is a through line we're going to keep following. So I want to pivot to 2024 for a little bit. Um, As you all know, we've been talking about the AJC's recent polling that shows Trump and Biden in a dead heat. But even if those two become the nominees for the two major political parties, there will be others on the ballot. Cornell West, RFK Jr. running as independents. Just this week, Green Party candidate Jill Stein announced 
she was running. Let's hear a little bit from her. So forget the pundits and the attack dogs who tell you to ignore your misery and just keep voting for those who caused it in the first place. Change won't come from the ruling elites. It comes from we the people. So she went in. She also went on in that video to say she'd use diplomacy to end what she called endless wars. She wanted to abolish student and medical debt and create a green new deal. So Raul, I want to start with you. Do you think that with this crowded field, these other kind of third party or independent candidates should Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whoever is the Republican Party nominee be more worried about these third party candidates? I think the the starting point on that conversation is which of these candidates get on the ballot. You know, a reminder here in Georgia, that's that's not an easy thing to get an independent candidate on the ballot. Just, you know, in 2020, there were three candidates on the ballot, you know, um, um, former President Trump, uh, President Biden and the libertarian Joe Jorgensen. So. First of all, on any of these states, the, the, you know, the, these swing states, the six, seven states that everyone's going to be watching, including Georgia, who actually gets on the ballot first is going to be my first question um, with any of this. You know, after Trump was indicted in Georgia back in August, I spent a little time in Alpharetta in North Fulton County, one of these places that is home to a lot of split ticket voters, could be very impactful in deciding the 2024 election result. And the amount of people who unprompted told me they were dissatisfied with both Biden and Trump and who brought up the name RFK Jr. as someone they were interested in was shocking to me. It was at least a handful um, out of a sample at the Alpharetta Saturday Farmers Market. So I think whether that trans translates into actual votes come November of next year. I don't know. But at least at this point, there are people who seem to be looking for an alternative or people not showing up. I mean, that that's going to be as important as anything is, is who actually shows up to vote and, and who are they voting for and why? But I, I, I don't think we can dismiss the idea of people not showing up as well. And we should mention that this no labels kind of movement is possibly going to try to do a an attempt for a consensus candidate, perhaps with they're trying to recruit Mitt Romney. Now Joe Manchin is coming in. Um, Bill, Raul and Sam said people groaned when they started thinking about, oh, my gosh, another presidential election around the corner. Um, it could get interesting. Well, as a matter of fact, as you know, Tia, um, Greg Boostin isn't with us today because he's in Athens at the University of Georgia, where Joe Manchin is speaking today, Greg suggests, is it possible that Joe Manchin today will give us some hints as to whether he does want to, in fact, launch a, uh, a presidential bid? I, 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 it's silly to speculate, but I have to say um, I'm dubious about his jumping into this race. You have a different feeling about that, Raul? Again, two thoughts. Who's going to vote for him? Right. And, and that's with any of these candidates. I mean, Sam brought up some of the people who would vote who would vote for RFK. But my question is, who are the Georgia voters who are going to vote for Joe Manchin? Yep. And and the other thing is, can he get on the ballot? Well, that's right, too. But but of course, it doesn't you don't have to have many votes as an alternative candidate if you're on the Georgia ballot to upset a very, very tight election between the Democratic and Republican presidential candidates. I mean, I think uh, one Sam. 
I think one caveat to put on this is a lot of people make nods toward a presidential run to make sure they stay in the mix, that they're the focus of media attention, they can get their message out there and their platform out there, but then media nods aren't going to actually go through. So we think all these people aren't sincere? (laughs) Politics, (laughs) Tia. (laughs) So let's pivot. Okay, Georgia legislature, which you guys, Sam, um, Raul, you're going to be there every day. You've been doing some great reporting, Sam, about the upcoming redistricting session later this month. What do you expect could happen when legislators meet? So just a quick reset, why we're going into special session right now is that a federal judge has ordered Georgia's legislature to redraw its political maps for Congress and for the state House and Senate because he found that they violate the Federal Voting Rights Act uh, by illegally diluting the power of black voters. And so what we're going to see unfold now is exactly how those lines shake out. The judge gave specific instructions to draw an additional majority black district west of in West Metro Atlanta and some additional state House and Senate seats south of Metro Atlanta and around Macon. But exactly how those lines shake out isn't so cut and dry. Uh, Republicans hold the keys to this process. They control both chambers of the legislature. And it will probably result in some current office holders being drawn out of their seats or being drawn into the seat with a colleague. And exactly what that looks like, there will probably be a lot of back and forth uh, over who, who wins and who loses in that process. You, you know, one of the most interesting aspects about this uh, redrawing of the maps uh, is in the legislative uh, uh, districts. And, of course, the legislative district redrawing is particularly charged because it's the legislators themselves who draw the district lines. Um, and we have to remember that there is a one-year residency requirement to serve in a given district. And so what that means is if you start redrawing lines, it's, it's first of all, challengers are going to have to be watching very carefully where they'll stand in these legislative districts. But incumbents could find themselves drawn out of their own district and not able to meet the residency requirements for the district they'd like to run in. That's chaos. <laughs> so, Raul, I have a question for you. Yes, and ma'am. this is something that is in the back of my mind as we go into this special session. Is there a scenario or is it possible that Republicans can follow the letter of the judge's order on redrawing the maps, but not change the overall math of how many seats are controlled by Republicans versus how many seats are controlled by Democrats, whether we're talking about the congressional map or the General Assembly maps? Let's start with the congressional map. That is probably the most interesting thing of can they draw another black majority congressional district and meet those terms because the seventh congressional district what how is that judged you know how does Steve Jones the federal judge who made that ruling look at the seventh congressional district you know could they make that a majority black district already represented by a Democrat? Or not. I mean, that's so starting with the congressional district, that to me is the most interesting thing. And the other side of that argument, the other side of that sword is if you don't, do Republicans want to take the chance that Judge Jones then has a special master redraw the lines instead of politicians getting to redraw the lines? 
Yeah. And I mean, in Judge Jones's ruling, he very specifically said you cannot dismember a majority minority district in order to create this majority black district. And the seventh is majority minority. And it would be real risky, as Raul is saying, for Republicans, the lawmaker to test this, because we look at what happened in Alabama, where lawmakers did not meet the letter of the original court order and they ended up with a special master. So in that situation, Republicans lose all their ability to control how these district lines shape up. And that is a big risk. You know, um, T, if I could jump in on this, one of the things that I find truly fascinating about uh, this entire uh, story is um, we know that Alabama just went through the same thing. They were ordered by a federal court to redraw their lines to give better representation to black voters. And they went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court said, yes, redraw those lines, which they (laughs) refused uh, to do. And the Supreme Court uh, basically wrapped them on the knuckles and had the lines uh, redrawn by by uh, others. But but here's why I think this is particularly interesting. We know that the Supreme Court has ruled that partisan gerrymandering is legal. If you're a Republican majority and want to draw lines that give you better outcomes than Democrats, that's perfectly within the rights uh, that you hold um, to do so. But that that um, racial gerrymandering is illegal. Mm-hmm. The problem is those can be completely intertwined issues. How do you tell the difference between lines that are being drawn? Obviously, we expect that black voters are more likely to vote Democratic. Okay, so with all that in mind, how do you tell the difference between racial and um, partisan gerrymandering. And it's interesting to me that as the Georgia case is appealed, which it certainly will be, this could go all the way up to the Supreme Court. The problem is the Supreme Court already said in Alabama, you did draw your lines around racial representation, and so you've got to redraw the map. And I would suspect they might have the same reaction to a Georgia map, although we don't know. I do want to finish up the other half of your question, Tia, about what's going on um, on the state legislative side. And and going back to the decision that Sam was just talking about, he uh, Judge Steve Jones specifically said that there needs to be two more black state Senate districts drawn and five state House seats uh, redrawn. And that's that's going to be harder to be able to avoid, you know, lawmakers getting um, knocked out and, and, and where we're in the in the areas that I'm going to be focused on is going to be Henry County, mm-hmm. Fayette County, Cobb County, Douglas. I mean, the, the, the southern and western parts of Cobb and Douglas. Those are the areas that the judge both mentioned, but are also the ones that kind of make the most sense in terms of moving seats around. So I have another question about just the mechanics of it. Democrats are not just in the minority, but like they just they don't have the numbers to really make much of a difference. But what does that mean? What is the role, if anything, that Democrats will play as the maps are being withdrawn, uh, redrawn, Sam? Uh, yesterday, I was on the phone with Representative Syra Draper, uh, a Democrat from Metro Atlanta, and I asked her this very question, like, what is the Democrats' role here, considering that Republicans literally hold the pens for this redrawing process? And she said she sees it as being someone to call out if the proposed maps uh, do not look like they're adhering with Judge Jones's order to to raise that concern publicly. Um, but 
in terms of actually taking a stab at drawing those first maps, that's something that's going to be totally controlled by the Republican committee chairs. Uh, and Democrats really don't have much of a say in it. So before I let you guys go, I did want to ask about the Trump grand jury, the Trump RICO charges, the Trump 19, if you will, which what I think is down to what, 16 or 15? Four, please. So we're down to 15. 15, 15. So we actually have some AJC polling about that. A lot of um, people polled says they do believe that the charges are politically motivated. As we wrap up, I'll start with you, Raul. As you're covering this, what are some of the, uh, the threads that you're looking for as far as the political impact of uh, these, this RICO, these RICO charges? It's actually the probably the one person who has not been involved in these cases, and that is Lieutenant Governor Burke Jones. Um, uh, Fonnie Willis was disqualified um, because of some of her actions fundraising for the lieutenant governor's opponent. And so right now, that is in the hand, any kind of investigation or prosecute any uh, uh, prosecution of the lieutenant governor, or even looking at his case, is in the hands of Pete Scandalakis, who is the executive director of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council. To me, I'm still, uh, that's like the next, uh, you know, because Sam is leading our coverage on what's going on at the Fulton County Courthouse. Up at the state capitol, for me, that's that's one of the things I'm, I'm still watching for. Well, actually, let me jump in because, Tia, you mentioned the AJC polling on this issue. Um, what's fascinating about it is that we find that a majority of the people polled, and of course led by Republican respondents, uh, said that they think that the charges against Donald Trump and his allies are highly uh, political. Um, uh, they also said by a majority that they think the charges are serious. But may, perhaps most important is that by a very large majority, our respondents said, if Donald Trump is convicted of any criminal charges, that may disqualify him as their candidate for the White House. Sam, I'll let you get the final word before our break. Yeah, I just want to go back to this time I spent with voters in Alpharetta right after the initial indictment, this critical community right here in Fulton County, the center of this case. And I heard time and time again people saying that they believe it is politically motivated. But I also heard people saying uh, that they felt like it was time for the courts to work this out and that if Trump is the nominee, they wouldn't be willing to consider a Republican. If it was someone else, they would. So the the bleed between this issue of the indictment and the criminal charges and the 2024 election, these conversations feed each other and are certainly going to keep doing that as we head closer to the election Absolutely. when this is at the forefront. Yeah. And I, I said that I was going to let you guys go, but that's actually not the case. You guys are sticking around for our next segment. So we're going to take a break. When we return, we'll answer listeners' questions from our listener mailbag. And Sam and Raul are going to help us with who's up and who's down this week from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This is Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. 
The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter. And now we have the new Politically Georgia PM update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. All one word and spell it out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. Over the years doing the Politically Georgia podcast, we learned that listeners uh, have questions about Georgia politics in the news we cover. So we set up the Politically Georgia call-in hotline so people could ask their questions. And every Friday, we're going to play those questions back and answer them during our listener mailbag segment. So you can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime. 24 hours a day at 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. All right, Shaney B., what do we have this week? Man, Tia, we got a lot of phone calls to the Politically Georgia podcast and radio show hotline. Uh, So I whittled it down to the best three. All right. So let's start off with Josh in Johns Creek. Uh, He wants to talk about this week's censure of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Bill Nygut said on the podcast this week that she was censured in part because she said that there was a genocide going on in Gaza. But that seems to be the consensus of lots of international legal scholars. So what's the controversy here? Love the show. Thanks for your work. Um, Josh, I, I, I think that, first of all, uh, when you say it seems to be the consensus, I would say argue that, yes, it is certainly true that there are a great many people around the world who are watching right now uh, the war uh, against Hamas and are concerned about the um, extent to which Israel is um, uh, fighting an all-out war in, in, in Gaza. But uh, the word genocide, number one, is highly charged. Uh, and, and I think that um, it is really troubling when you try to apply a uh, a word as controversial as that to what's going on, remember, Israel suffered a barbaric attack that killed, kidnapped uh, more than a thousand Israelis. But here's what I really want to say about this: um, I got an email this week that's kind of along the same lines as your question. It was from a listener who heard our show on Monday that Tia and I did with Sam Olins and Michael Thurmond, and much of the conversation revolved around Israel's right to defend itself. And uh, the emailer said, what about the rights of Palestinians who for, he said, many decades have been repressed by the Israelis? Um, And there is certainly no doubt that the very conservative governments of Israel have in fact marginalized Palestinian people and to some extent have contributed to the tensions that lead to terrorist attacks like the horrific attack by Hamas on October 7th. What I would really suggest that people might want to do is I wrote for the Friday newsletter a longer piece in which I try to go into the details of the back and forth between Israel and uh, the Palestinians that that I hope gets at the heart 
of the controversy that's going on right now. I, I have a Friday piece uh, every week. It's part of that PM newsletter, which you can get by going to AJC.com newsletters. And I hope you'll take a look at that. It's available for free. And I think it gives a much more detailed answer to uh, your concerns, Josh, and to the question that the emailer wrote to me. Thanks so much, Bill. And we, of course, appreciate the expertise you add to our Politically Georgia show. Who's next, Shane? From Athens, we hear from Caroline with a question about Georgia's voting law. Hey, great to hear you guys online again. My question is about the challenging uh, SB 202 that Kemp signed into office that allows for challenging. Why isn't the onus on the challenger and not the challenged to prove? That should be uh, on the challenger, the onus of proof. Thanks so much, and long live Politically Georgia. Take care. (laughs) Sam, I'll let you take this one. So just a little bit of context to start. What SB 202 did is not create this new ability for individuals to challenge an unlimited number of voters. It basically affirmed it. Uh, this This was happening before, but the law made it explicit that this is something that could be done. And, uh, Groups like True the Vote, this conservative Texas-based group, has taken full advantage of that, uh, helping challenge many thousands of voters uh, in the 2021 runoff up until the last midterms. Um, there's a lawsuit going on about this right now that Fair Fight brought uh, that was current that was in federal court just last month. And to your question, Caroline, it is a really high threshold to move a challenge forward. There has to be a probable cause. And if not, it's dismissed out of hand. And that's what's happened with most of these challenges. Uh, So very few of them have actually gotten beyond that phase where it gets to a hearing. The the problem, though, Sam, is that that doesn't prevent people like uh, the group True the Vote from, uh, in fact, filing thousands and thousands of challenges which have to be processed and dismissed. So that's one of the reasons the lawsuit uh, is going on in Gainesville in federal court uh, uh, because Fair Fight is fighting back saying these were uh, malicious Uh, uh, disruptive tactics used for partisan reasons. Yeah, and two points to make on this. Even if a lot of these challenges are eventually dismissed, the effect of them is, one, it hamstrings local election offices that Mm -hmm. are already stretched super thin with all of the tasks that they have to do under Georgia voting law. And two, it causes confusion among voters. Uh, You know, I heard from one voter who had their vote challenged, and it took so much hoop jumping to try and figure out what was going on with their vote and to make sure that they were all okay to cast their ballot, that they worry that if they didn't have the wherewithal uh, to to figure out how to navigate all of this, they might have just given up. Fair Fight would say it's an intimidation tactic. Yeah. And I, I want to I throw in one more thing. It, 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 I went to these hearings, the ones in Forsyth County and Cobb County, those are the ones I too remember off the top of my head. To, to answer the, the question of Caroline, what I was seeing was these local election boards they they wanted really strong evidence they they if they were going to take a voter off the rolls they wanted strong evidence to make that decision and you saw that from from these board members republican and democrat all right that was a great answer to caroline's questions and shaney b let's do one more okay one more to wrap up the week our next call comes from (gasps) Uh Uh-oh. 
No name. Now, there, there's, Anonymous source. there's there's just one small rule here on the uh, Politically Georgia listener mailbag segment. If you don't leave a name, I give you a name. <laughs> so we're going to hear from Bartholomew in Buford. Has a question, question about this. Yeah. My state senator, Colton Moore, has not exactly ingratiated himself with Republican leadership under the Gold Dome. With the upcoming legislative redistricting session, should he be worried that the leaders may try to exact some sort of revenge for his um, shenanigans? Or is that even possible given the demographic and political makeup of his senatorial district? Thanks. All right, Raul, you're on. So the answer really is maybe. But the second half of Bartholomew's question is the important part. State Senator Colton Moore is in far northwest Georgia, and I mean in Dade County, which is literally the last county in northwest Georgia. Redrawing his lines is going to be very, even if you do one of these where you draw his house into someone else's district, is going to be really, really difficult. Um, because he's, it, it may be just a simple issue of math, and all the districts around him are 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 more moderate state senators, Chuck Payne and Chuck Huffstetler, and so do they want to be drawn into a, a battle with him? The that my point is maybe, and there's so many other things that Republicans have to worry about in redrawing these lines that Colton Moore may not be at the top of the list, but you can never dismiss that. And we're not expecting Sam? we're not expecting the maps to be redrawn wholesale. You know, we expect to see focus in these areas that the judge has ruled likely violate the Voting Rights Act. Now, of course, that has domino effects. When you change one line, it often changes the line of a district near it, and that can have repercussions. But, you know, we're not necessarily expecting a wholesale starting from scratch approach to this map. All right, guys. So we're going to end the show with who's up and who's down. All right, so our winners and losers of the week, and since we always like to end on a high note, we're gonna start with who's down. Since we have guests, we're not gonna make them go first. So Bill, who is your who's down for the week? Well, it's it's really disappointing for me to have to say that my who's down this week should actually be my who's up, and that's U.S. veterans. Um, and I say that, that, that this is a very sad situation because we know that over the last 20 years, there has been a staggering increase in the number of suicides by veterans, um, that there are, there are still unmet needs as a result of uh, traumatic brain injury. Veterans face marital and legal challenges. Um, there are so many stigmas attached to being a veteran in this country, and I think a great many people recognize that their service has been so meaningful and important. They deserve much, much better care than they're getting. And to some extent, we can see that in the state of Georgia, where session before uh, the new mental health law was passed, which does in fact uh, expand treatment for mental illnesses uh, that would include veterans, although many of them are covered, of course, by the VA. But the point, of the, the point of fact is that mental services for veterans are really still wanting. And so they should be my up this week. Sadly, they're my down. 
Good point, Bill. Raul, who's your down? Uh, I'm going to mention what's going on in northwest Georgia, the the issues around the severe drought. Um, hopefully we're going to get a little rain this weekend. It'll it'll help. But, you know, for, for anybody, whether you're an outdoors person or camper or, you, you know, you've got a farm, be careful if you do any burning fires. Let's take care of those because we still are in a drought situation, severe northwest Georgia, but we're we're in a moderate drought down here in the Atlanta metro area. So I think that would be my down for the week. Wow. Thank you, weatherman. Sam? <laughs> so my down is going to be local democracy. Uh, we had municipal elections this week and turnout in Fulton County was about 10 percent. It was in the teens in Cobb and DeKalb. You know, there weren't a lot of big races on the ballots, but we had school board, city council, mayors, and turnout was pretty darn low. In my who's down, I'll keep it quick. Mike Collins, he was in last place in his campaign to serve as vice chair of the Republican conference. Um, so he's my who's down. All right, we're gonna have to be quick for who's up because we're running out of time. Bill, who's your who's up? Georgia actors, because my wife uh, wrote plays for the Alliance Theater for many years. Many of our friends are Georgia actors. We're so happy their strike is over and they will finally get back to work. Some 3,000 members of SAG-AFTRA here in Georgia. Raul? I'm going to, uh, first of all, I appreciate everything you said about Veterans Bill, but I'm still going to make them my up because they served our nation. And most importantly, to my favorite veteran, my wife, uh, for her service. I have to. I have to. But thank you for every person who has served our nation. Yes. Thank you for her service. We thank her for her service. Sam, quickly. Back to politics and pints. The two winners, first place, barbed wire team and not your governor's working group. Those were our first place winners. Congrats. All right. Congrats to the winners. And my who's up is Representative Sanford Bishop, who was appointed to the Board of Visitors at West Point. All right. That's all the time we have for today's Politically Georgia. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 p.m. each weekday. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday at 10 for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.